You are listening to The Natural Philosopher with Dr. Mick Pope, a podcast on science, the environment, and the Christian faith. This podcast is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Well, welcome to another episode of The Natural Philosopher with Mick Pope. And this program is entitled The Image of God and Our Vocation of the Soil, or you might say, Why Christians Should Get Into Gardening. This uh, podcast comes or is based on a paper I gave at a conference on work last year, back when you could still attend conferences face to face. That time is coming once again. And it's from a paper of the same name. So what I'm going to do is try and tease it apart a little bit more and encourage you I guess along two lines, as we'll see. So we know, and I've talked about in previous episodes, that the Anthropocene represents the sum total of human impacts upon the planet, from climate change and the acidifying of the oceans by adding carbon dioxide to them, to the threat of mass extinctions, including the pollinators of our food, so invertebrates like bees, and things like land use changes for agriculture, also the disruption of key natural cycles of phosphorus and nitrogen, due to the misapplication or the overuse of fertilisers. Now, agriculture plays a key role in the Anthropocene at both the production and the consumption end. And Raj Patel and Jason Moore, in a book that they wrote on the Anthropocene, see cheap food as one of the key elements in the rise of capitalism. This rise in turn produced the great acceleration of the global economy in the 1950s, which marks the beginning of the Anthropocene. Scholar Ellen Davis identifies the present crisis as a result of human beings fully habituated to industrialised culture. The solution, according to her, is to become fully human, which in biblical terms has become the image of God, or realise the image of God. This full humanity is achieved by recognising the agrarian, or that is the farm or agricultural nature of the Bible, and that God's work as farmer and caretaker provides a model for our own behaviour. So this episode explores a theology of the image of God, the fancy Latin term is Imago Dei, and our vocation of the soil by examining the agricultural themes that are present in the two creation accounts that we find at the start of Genesis. That's Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3, and Genesis 2, 4 um, to the end of that chapter. Well, indeed, uh, chapter 3, if you will, as well. This theology is then applied to the human vocation in the Anthropocene in two ways. So the first is that all human activity is to be shaped by an agrarian or an agricultural model of our relationship to the soil, which is one of nurturing, one of abundance, but also one of limits. And secondly, these creation accounts present agriculture as essential to human identity. And as such... I argue, and tentatively speaking, uh, that all humans should be bivocational and become involved at some level at least in the production of food. 
Now, I want to head it off at the pass, of course, is that one famous experiment of returning society to an agrarian or an agricultural-based one, of course, was, um, was Cambodia. And I'm not at all suggesting that humans be forced back to the land or that we all be involved in farm life. But nonetheless, the activity of growing food, of regrounding ourselves quite literally, will help make us more sensitive to the world around us, uh, make us more um, embodied and emplaced, if you will, and sensitive to all the things that perturb that. Anyway. I've spoken before about uh, the Anthropocene in a few different episodes and noted that the Great Acceleration, so the period since the 50s of rapid economic growth, is, is a strong marker, although the ideological beginnings go back much further. Now, with its onset, that is of the Anthropocene, a number of key elements of the Earth system, which, uh, to use the phrase I've used before, uh, represent the safe operating space for humanity, have been disrupted. And remember that safe operating space is that period of time where agriculture began, the so-called Holocene. Of course, the Great Acceleration didn't emerge ex nihilo or from nothing, but has had several historical antecedents. And they, of course, include the origins of agriculture, the invasion of the Americas by Europeans, and the Industrial Revolution. Now, Lewis and Maslin, and they've written a book which is entitled The Human Planet, How We Created the Anthropocene, and also a paper, I think, um, in Nature, I don't have the reference handy, which was entitled Defining the Anthropocene. They note that the origins of agriculture have, quote, long-lasting environmental impacts. Now, that's not in of itself complete uh, to provide a, a geologically measurable origin to the Anthropocene. Remember, when we talk about these geological ages, we're talking about things that geologists can measure in terms of fossils or markers that you can measure. And the Great Acceleration is tied into testing of nuclear weapons. So there's uh, an increase in carbon-14 in the atmosphere in that period. That's a radioactive form of carbon from the release of these bombs. But there are things that, perhaps not as dramatic, are still measurable. So agriculture replaces natural vegetation. It increases species extinction rates, and you can kind of gather that from number of bones. And it alters, wait for it, biogeochemical flows, which is flows of nitrogen and phosphorus and all these other things. So there's something known as the early Anthropocene hypothesis, which suggests that human activity has modified the current interglacial cycle. Now, I spoke about this in the last program, but in essence, the, this interglacial cycle is the variation over a, a period of time, it's about 100,000 years, between where the Earth is, in the higher latitudes at least, is covered in ice sheets, and the climate is colder and drier, and the so-called interglacials, which is where we're sat right now, a relatively warm and stable climate period. And so the idea of the early Anthropocene hypothesis is that about 8,000 years ago, because of the rise of agriculture, we started clearing more and more forest for farming land. And agricultural land stores less carbon dioxide than forests, particularly old growth forests, which store a lot of carbon in the soil profile. And so about 8,000 years ago, we see a slow but steady increase in atmospheric carbon dioxide that's tied into uh, that disruption of the Earth system. And then about 5,000 years ago, we see an increase in methane in the atmosphere associated with rice agriculture. So methane is produced by a form of bacteria, it's called archaea, in the very oxygen-poor soil that you find at the bottom of wetlands. 
and also human produced wetlands, which is wet rice agriculture. And you also see it in the guts of sheep and cattle. So that again kicked off uh, another increase in greenhouse gas concentrations and has acted, it seems, to keep us in a relatively warm period. Now, agricultural changes were also associated with the new um, slash old world collision, which began with the arrival of Europeans in the Caribbean in 1492. I mean, let's be blunt, it was an invasion. And, um, well, I'll get to the numbers in a second, but, of course, foodstuffs were exchanged between the quote-unquote old world and new worlds. But the arrival of Europeans in the Americas resulted in an estimated 48 million deaths. Now, this is based on extrapolation, but nonetheless, people died of European diseases, like smallpox and so on. And they were enslaved and they were subject to war and, and, and it was just, I mean, it's horrific and it's, it's well worth reading up about the history. So by 1650, uh, approximately 48 million people had died. It's, it's a big number uh, and it's, it's a statistic but, and it's hard to get your head around. But it, what it does is it reminds us that the origins of the Anthropocene are tied up in colonialism and if we're to deal with the whole concept of the Anthropocene, it must be done in a post-colonialist framework. Anyway, the collapse of farming resulted in the regeneration of over 50 million hectares and a slight increase in global carbon dioxide, uh, sorry, a slight decrease in global carbon dioxide levels as a result. So the idea that North American Indians, for example, rode about on horseback and were just nomadic is, of course, a nonsense. Uh, there was established agriculture until Europeans arrived and people died um, in their millions. The Great Acceleration, moving forward back to the 50s again, is marked by a rapid upward trend in global population, gross domestic product, as I've talked about in previous programs, fertilizer consumption, water use, etc. And both nitrogen and phosphorus fertilizers result in the deoxygenation of aquatic ecosystems, which simply means that fertilizers get in the water, they fertilize algae, when the algae dies, that um, decay consumes oxygen and the fish die, and everything pretty much dies in, in the water. And nitrogen in the water supply can result in blue baby disease, a congenital heart defect, and it can be it is associated with some cancers. Now, Patel and Moore observed that the production of cheap food has played a key role in the rise of capitalism. Rather than the earlier land-based political economies, producing surpluses, capitalism focuses on labour and market solutions. Labour becomes more efficient, such that fewer people work the land, and food is kept cheap to enable, in turn, cheap labour. The land is transformed into monocultures designed to bring in profit. Such an agricultural system soon gives rise to the exhaustion of the land, notwithstanding the Green Revolution. Uh, nonetheless, the land is becoming exhausted. So what's the connection then to the Old Testament? In the beginning, agriculture and the image of God. Now we're going to get in just into a tiniest little bit of Hebrew here. So John Walton is an Old Testament scholar and he's argued that Genesis 1 describes the bringing of order and function to creation. And that in particular, what you read about in Genesis uh, chapter 1 verse 2 about formless and void, uh, a formless chaos, is not that at all, but it's actually a lack of agricultural order. Now there's two words in the Hebrew, it's tohu wabohu. Tohu wabohu, and the wabit simply means and. So the words are actually uh, tohu and bohu. Now they're found together in Isaiah 34:11, and in that that particular passage, Edom is being judged in revenge for what it's done to Zion, which you read about in Isaiah 34:8. 
Now, the New Revised Standard Version reads in verse 11b, that's the second half of verse 11 of chapter 34, that, quote, he shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plummet of chaos over its nobles. And so it's a, if you take that reading, then what's being talked about is that the, the bohu and tohu is this, this catastrophe that befalls the nobles. And that's not untrue, but if you read the New American Standard Bible, for example, it reads, quote, And he will stretch over it the line of desolation and the plumb line of emptiness. So confusion and chaos are appropriate verbs if the subject is the nobles of Edom, but if it's the, sur- the surrounding context is what's actually happen- happening to the land. And so you've got this what's known as a chiastic or a chiastic structure. Let me tease this out for you. So in verse 11a, it reads, the land will be occupied by wild animals. And that's paralleled by an extended description in verses 13b to 15, which says that the land will be occupied by wild animals. Then in verse 11b, uh, Isaiah 34 says that the land will become desolate and empty and unfit for agriculture. That's the key passage we're talking about. And then 13a, the land will be full of weeds. And a land, agricultural land full of weeds is, of course, a sign of agricultural collapse. And then right in the middle of the account is that the human rulers will be nothing. So the reference to nobles, princes, and the lack of a king in this passage represent the judgment on the nation of Edom. However, the description of tohu and bohu is best applied to the land itself. Instead of agricultural bounty, it's full of thorns, thistles, and nettles. And it talks about this in verse 13a. So this suggests that the land is desolate and empty and that the New American Standard Bible translation reading is to be preferred. So hence in Genesis 1, agricultural order is imposed on the creation over this formlessness and void, now read agricultural desolation, or somewhere that's unfit for agriculture over a period of six days. On day one, time is created by the creation of light and its separation from darkness. And you'll note the passage doesn't talk about God creating the darkness. It's presupposed, do with that what you will, but God creates the light and separates it from the darkness. And of course, the key rhythm of Genesis 1 is the six days plus the seventh Sabbath day. And so this is the necessary first step. On the second day, space is created because the waters above are separated from the waters below by the firmament. And then on the third day, food is created, or agriculture has begun, by separating the waters into one place and the dry ground in another where vegetation can grow. And it talks about the vegetation that grows. On day four, the sun, moon and stars are installed in the firmament to rule the day and night and mark the seasons necessary for agriculture. But get this, the word used isn't simply seasons as in spring, summer, autumn and winter, but refers to appointed times. And it's the same word in the Hebrew that's applied to the seven agricultural festivals, which are also part of Israel's salvation history. So Booths and Passover and all these other festivals in the history of Israel, which are marked by agricultural activities. So the whole year of Israel, they're reminded about what God has done for them by those events being tied to various harvests. And then finally, God creates living creatures and humans in the divine image and grants them plants to eat. And that's the punchline. And of course, in Genesis 1, 
we're given a purely vegetarian picture, which is then modified in Genesis 9, post-flood, and then limits, I was just reading about this tonight, limits are placed on this in Leviticus chapter 11. So that, that turgid uh, book of the Bible that goes into what's clean and unclean, it's a limiting of human violence. Anyway, so that's half the picture then, that when you read about formless and void at the start of Genesis, it's actually God setting up the world relevant where creatures can exist and be fruitful and multiply and so on and feed themselves. And for human beings in that picture, that implies agriculture. And we'll pick up the rest of that story in the second half of the program. Well, welcome back to the second half of the program. In the first half of the program, I was arguing by considering two words in Genesis chapter 1 and looking at one other place, and you can do it in other places as well, but looking at one other place about their usage, that it's not talking about a formless and void kind of this dark shadowy. I don't know how you picture it in your head. I always think about you know the blackness and a lack of light and swirling clouds and all sorts of other funky stuff. It's talking about, ultimately, a place where there's a sense of no place and no time and no ordering for people to grow food. Something that we take for granted when you can just go down to the shop and buy it. So that's kind of the picture of of Genesis 1. But let's go a bit further. So Ellen Davis, who has, she's got a chair in practical theology and is interested in agriculture. I find this fascinating. Agrees with John Walton that an agricultural theme runs through Genesis 1 and sees an agricultural theme joining Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and indeed the rest of the Hebrew Bible. A first key is the role seeds play in Genesis 1. So remember on day 3, the dry land called earth is created as the waters below the heavens were gathered into one place. That's Genesis 1.9. From the land come out, and here's a kind of a literal reading of, of the Hebrew, comes forth sprout out sprouts, plants seeding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit. Let me read that again. So, sprout out sprouts, plants seeding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit. There is an emphasis on self-perpetuation and abundance with greenery of various kinds. And I might say, as kind of an aside, you look at the first creation account, and it's creation cooperating with its creator and having a role in its own unfolding. The closing bracket on seeds is in verse 29 of chapter 1, as every plant and fruit tree seeding seed is for human eating, and all other greenery is for the animals. That's verse 30. Following Walton then from this, what you call a functional perspective or a functional understanding of creation, that is not how it was made, but what the heck it's for, soil, water, and the principle of seed bearing are all tied to the production of food. The account of the emergence of dry land mirrors, and I don't know how precise this is, but it looks like the annual appearance of soil after flooding of the Nile. So there's all these images floating around the ancient Near East. In the extended discussion on seed-bearing plants, 
Ellen Davis sees an awkwardness in a departure from the conciseness of the first two days of creation. You go and read it and it has this rhythm to it, this pattern, and then day three kind of breaks that up. And she thinks that this points towards the particularity of the place and the genetic diversity of the region at the time. So the region of the Fertile Crescent marks one of the locations of the origins of agriculture. It started there. Hence, read in this way, this, um, the priestly account of creation seems not far removed from the overtly agrarian character of the Yahwehists' drama of the soil. Now, the phrase Yahwehist is getting into the different sources, supposedly, of um, the Hebrew Bible, and it's a term that's kind of moved away from, but it means the Genesis 2 through 4 story, which is very much concerned with agriculture. Uh, the man and the woman in the garden, and then... The, um, the struggle that they have with the soil, and of course the, the story of Cain and Abel afterwards. So the Fertile Crescent, the place where this account was written, uh, was a location where agriculture began and a place of, amazing, of genetic diversity. So the concept of the image of God, or the Imago Dei, then can be linked to our relationship to soil. Now the priestly vision for human life is realized in Israel and its holiness as a people. And you can see that in various places like Levitic Leviticus, uh, Leviticus 11, 44 and 45, 19.2 and places like that. It's, it's a big theme. This vision of holiness emphasized the land and covenanted creatures along with the people. So what does that mean? It means that it's not just humans who engage in a covenant relationship with God. Uh, it's probably not time to tease this out in full, but you see um, the land belonging to God and land not being able to be sold and that sense that God had a prior relationship with the land well before the people arrived. Now, this vision of holiness emphasized the land and covenant creatures along with the people. As I said, Genesis 1, 26-28 shows us how life in God's image is meant to conform with other forms of life in a harmonious whole. That's a quote or a from Davis. What follows then is the most essential task of securing food along with the other animals. Go back to Genesis 1, 29 and 30, where we're giving the, the fruit trees and the green vegetation given to the animals. Now, understanding Genesis 1 to originate in the exile, when Israel's carted off to Babylon, Davis interprets verses 29 to 30 in the context of a Mesopotamian temple-centered agricultural system, where you worked for the king. Um, to provide him with food. Hence, the image of God represents a democratization of the kingly role to all those involved in the agricultural system, by which I mean the following, that in the ancient Near East, the king was the image of God. But in Genesis 1, everybody is made in the image of God. We share that dignity. And one of the implications of that is to, um, is to challenge this Mesopotamian temple. Now, it's probably more likely that Genesis 1 reaches its final form in the Persian period. And is written in part to encourage Sabbath obedience and engagement in the Second Temple. Nonetheless, it still stands as, as a statement about the democratized image of God and the share that we all have in that. So such a, an understanding of a divinely mandated role makes the exercise of... Um, you know, there's, there's two words that I've got here in the Hebrew, and they're kabash and radar. But of course, unless you know what they mean or what, where they go, I need to go back to the English, which I've almost forgotten. And it says, um, have dominion over the fish 
Um, oh, where are we? So it's this idea about subduing and have dominion. And, and that carries all sorts of negative connotations. But it always has to be because of its usage elsewhere in, in military victory and so on. So we need to um, understand that in, in the context of a people who'd been through exile and had come back to their land and were struggling to reestablish themselves as a people and stand against, in their identity uh, of holiness, the surrounding nations. Now, it doesn't mean that we remove all the problems or the, the awkwardness of those, but it contextualizes it greatly, that they're taking back the land, as it were, um, and subdue it for agriculture, but under limits. Let's get to those limits. Let's talk about another section of the Bible now. And I entitled this section, Humans from the Humus, Life as Gardeners. So that's a pun, as we'll get to. So Jewish scholar Zaini Zevit notes that obviously agricultural themes are much clearer in the garden story of Genesis 2 and 3. Now in Genesis 2, 7, the man, Ha-Adam, in the Hebrew, was formed out of the earth. And the earth is Ha-Adama. So Adam from the Adama, or humans from the humus. Now Zevit sees a significant it in contrast, uh, the contrast between Adam and the animals. So hum, human beings are specifically referred to as coming from the Adama. And the word Adam is related both to the soil, Adama, as I've said, but also the color red, Adam, and blood, Dam. So in other words, what's being spoken about here is the terra rossa, this red, rich, uh, volc volcanic agricultural soil. And Theodore Hebert, in his book, um, the Yahweh's landscape notes that Adama is used in a precise sense as cultivable soil, as opposed to the more general, um, in the Hebrew it's the word Eretz, which is translated as the earth in Genesis 1, and then in many other places, including Leviticus, as land. So it's either the land of Israel or the land of Egypt. And the breathed upon clod of this um, terra rossa becomes a living being. And the Hebrew, the nefesh hayah, uh, is the same expression that's used in Genesis 1.24 to describe domestic and wild animals. So the act is different, but we share our organic nature out with other living creatures. The same label is used. Now, Zionist Evert reveals that much of what is understood about life in the garden, in popular vision and whatnot, is, is, probably comes from Greek mythology. So God planted a garden, put Adam in it, to work it and Zevit understands Eden as meaning bountiful so it's based on uh, it shares the same root as a word Edna which which means bountiful and Hebert notes that this bounty was of rain-based highlands and not the irrigated lowlands so there's the spring and the autumn rains and so life is a little bit you know you don't have the regular flooding of the Nile so life's a little bit on edge you, you need those seasonal rains to fall and elsewhere in Genesis 13.10 and Joel 2.3, Eden is described as well-watered and agriculturally endowed. So life in Eden was meant to be hard. It was agricultural toil, but rewarding labor. Now, Davis comments further on the nature of this labor. So there's uh, a couple of words in Genesis 2.5. And Genesis 2.5, he says, reaching for his Bible once more to give you an English. Genesis 2.5. Um, no, it's two seven. So, 
No, it's 2.15. Get it right. I had a one missing in my notes. So, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. Now, these two words, till and keep, in the Hebrew, uh, abad, which is often translated as work done for someone, except where it refers to the soil, where it's usually translated as work done on or with something. And so, Ellen Davis concludes that the human pair were to work for the soil, serving its needs. That's rad. Likewise, shamar, the second word in the phrase, is usually translated as keep, as in a flock, so 1 Samuel 17, 20. But it can also mean uh, observe, as in the phrase in Exodus 31, 13, keeping the Sabbath. And so Davis takes from this the need to observe the soil, learn for it, and respect its limits. So you don't treat all dirt as well, dirt, you you know, you know understand that it has needs, uh, that it's complex, that there are different sorts of soils, and you don't just run it through the mill of industrial agriculture till it collapses. These limits of the soil are instantiated within it by God and provide us with a lesson that human ingenuity cannot always overcome limits. Let me say that again, that the limit, these limits of the soil are instantiated within it by God and provide us with a lesson that human ingenuity cannot always overcome limits. Yeah, we're smart. Yeah, technology will take us a long way, but there are even limits to that. So returning to the soil then for the last couple of minutes. The Hebrew Bible presents the failure to learn wisdom from God, uh, but to grasp at uh, it has resulted in a skewed relationship between humanity and the soil. That's the message of Genesis 3, right? Proper care of land is presented as a holy and sacred task part of the good ordering of creation so that the human needs for nourishment are met so that we can procreate and bear the divine image the anthropocene demonstrates a lack of wisdom particularly with regards to limits western society in the 21st century is not agrarian in, in nature not that we see farming in the west continues the trend of a small number of laborers producing a large amount of food via mechanization or the use of cheap labor and i think about the whole covid situation in australia at the moment a lack of backpackers to cut to um to harvest fruit cheaply and i'm not arguing about mechanization per se but the way it's pushed the soil to its limits farming in the west continues the trend of a yeah i've read that bit okay as discussed already, agriculture has led to the pushing of several of the planetary boundaries, which support our human flourishing. What then does this relationship of the image of God and sorry, the relationship of the image of God to agriculture tell us about the human vocation for the non-farmer, which is most of us, right? I grew up in a farming community. I lived in houses that were on on farms, but I was ne- I've never been a farmer. I've done the odd hay baling and whatnot, but. So it's worth noting first that the the link to the New Testament is somewhat unclear or appears unclear. While Jesus operates from an agrarian milieu and tells a lot of parables based around agriculture, the bulk of the New Testament appears urban. Now, there are some suggestive elements in places. So the so-called Nazareth Manifesto of Luke 4 hints at a jubilee year, which includes a Sabbath rest for the land. Likewise, don't forget the similarities between the resurrection in John 20 and the garden story in Genesis 2. And they suggest a new creation theology that is matter-affirming. And the hint of the struggle of the creation and its futility to human misrule is found, of course, in Romans 8. So my argument, here it is, albeit tentative at this stage, is that the creation, sorry, if the creation accounts point to an intimate connection between humans and soil and a warping or frustration of the relationship, 
as part of our alienation from God, then part of being redeemed as human beings is being reconnected to soil. This does not suggest that humanity must return to an essentially agrarian way of life, necessarily, but that given that part of the Anthropocene is an abuse of soil, all humans are called, called to better respect the soil. Such respect can take three forms. Okay, so respecting the soil. Firstly, all human labour should indirectly nurture and serve the needs of soil. And that's the message of Genesis 2, according to Ellen Davis. So any human activity that undercuts agriculture is a breaking of a mandate, let alone a lack of wisdom. Secondly, all humans can be bivocational. Gardening represents return to the soil, a regrounding and a reconnection to natural cycles that has been lost in modern life. My friend Miriam Pepper has catalogued the variety of, uh, of ways in which community gardens can take shape, demonstrating that gardens uh, can provide spaces for reconciliation, meditation, education and becoming rooted to place. And the reference is uh, to the Australian Journal of Mission Studies number six, uh, volume, uh, six, vo- no, volume six, number two, 2012. It's called Church-Based Community Gardening, where mission meets ecology in local context. And it's a great read. And finally, thirdly and finally, Bruce Pascoe has demonstrated that Aboriginal people engaged in agriculture in a sustainable manner before colonisation. Learning to reground ourselves in an Australian context, and that's where I sit, is intimately tied up in reconciliation, which is land rights, justice and reparation. And it might not be similar in a number of other countries um, where you might be listening. In the United States, for example, you have an agricultural system that was based on slavery and the dispossession of the indigenous people. So you can't do theological thinking without addressing those two things in that context. So there you have it. You thought the first two creation accounts were just about where we came from, but no, there's an intimate connection uh, between what they're telling us and our need to feed ourselves in a sustainable fashion and be reminded that God provides all our needs, but our misrule, our mismanagement, our grasping for wisdom, Uh, prematurely and for power and influence means that we've made an almighty mess of it. And the first step is repentance. Uh, So I challenge you whether or not it's a community garden, a church garden, a pot where you grow a flower or some chilies or some herbs or whatever else, however you engage, that you get your hands dirty in the soil. Thank you for listening and God bless. You have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, conducted by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.